Today is Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of what in uh, the Christian calendar is called Holy Week, where we remember the last days of Jesus' life, his death, and then his resurrection. And Thursday this week, it's known as Maunday Thursday, when we'll be celebrating together, all if you want to turn up on Thursday evening here at the closer event. And we'll be remembering there the anniversary of Jesus' Last Supper, which he shared with his disciples before he went out, was betrayed, tried, and then executed. Good Friday celebrates the most terrible and yet the most wonderful day in world history when Jesus was crucified. And on Friday here, there'll be space for some quiet contemplation if you would like to come in. You'll see the details there in the bulletin. And then Holy Week culminates on Sunday, Easter Sunday, celebrating the empty tomb, celebrating Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now this evening, this evening we're going to look at the lives of two men who all four of the gospel writers mention in their accounts of what happened this week, 2000 or just under 2000 years ago. The point at which the, the lives of these two men meet illustrates the most incredible truth in the whole of world history. The first man I'm going to tell you about was a criminal. His name was Barabbas, and Matthew, in his account, he calls him a well-known prisoner. Luke says that he'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection and murder. John calls him a robber who had taken part in an uprising. Mark says that he was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. And then in Peter's first sermon, he describes Barabbas as a murderer. The uprising that John and Mark were talking about there in their descriptions of Barabbas refers to something similar that we have seen on our television screens over recent years in the Middle East uprisings where a dictator or an oppressive regime, there's been a reaction and they've tried to overthrow that despotic leader or, uh, or government. The people revolting to overthrow this oppressive domination they were under. And Barabbas wanted freedom for his people, but he used extreme measures in fighting for it, including clearly robbing and murdering. And because of this, some of the biblical commentaries describe Barabbas as a terrorist. He was a murderer, driven by hatred towards the occupying army in his country, and he had taken the law into his own hands, and he had been caught, and he was now going to be tried and executed. It appears that he was arrested with two of his fellow criminals who worked with him, was tried and found guilty, and all three of them were sentenced to death. Now, the means of execution back then in that culture at the time was crucifixion, an excruciating, drawn-out death nailed to a cross. And it appears, though I'm reading a little bit into the text, it appears there were three crosses which were due to be used, and we might surmise that Barabbas was the one due to be hung in the middle of the three as the leader of that uprising. Death was really part of his life. He was a rebel who killed others, and the penalty for that was death. The second man lived quite the opposite kind of life. He was perfectly innocent. He was a man driven not by hatred and revenge, but by compassion and love, and his name was Jesus. Barabbas hated, Jesus loved. 
Jesus was on a very different path, he, the path which led to life, life and freedom. He said, I have come that you might have life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, I am the life. And his life was completely the opposite of that of Barabbas. But like Barabbas, Jesus was arrested. And like Barabbas, Jesus was accused of inciting a rebellion, of being a revolutionary agitator, of encouraging the Jews not to pay taxes to Caesar, the Roman governor, Roman emperor, and threatening political authorities by claiming to be a king. Now, these were, of course, false accusations, but he was tried. He was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, by the Jewish religious authorities. And Pontius Pilate was just not a nice guy. He wasn't known for giving people a fair trial. Biblical scholar Michael Green wrote this about him. He was both weak and cruel and was hated for the continual murders he perpetrated on untried people. He enjoyed the reputation of being corrupt and grossly inhumane. So, you know, the worst kind of judge you can possibly imagine ever appearing before if you're accused of a crime. And his first response actually was to try and avoid even trying Jesus. And we find this here in John 18, verse 31. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. So he asked Jesus some questions, and he just simply couldn't find any fault in him. So I'll jump now to Luke 23 and verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So in effect, Pilate is saying, this man is innocent. I do not want to you know, uh, impose some penalty on him. There's no charge at all, no basis for this charge against this man. And so I've got to do something. I'm going to send him to somebody else, Herod, who happened to be around. What a relief. I don't need to be involved. I'll pass the buck. Unfortunately for Pilate, Herod found no basis for the charge or the charges and sent him back to Pontius Pilate. So here we have now in verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. He then had Jesus whipped till he was covered in blood, and he brought him out again in front of this crowd, and he said, behold the man. He wanted to show them this man covered in blood. This is totally not right. You cannot execute this man. This is quite sufficient. Let's let him go. But the crowd continued to want him crucified. Now, I'm just going to switch Bibles for a moment for reasons that will become clear later on. This is my today's NIV. This is my old NIV, New International Version. Let's read from Matthew 27 there and verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, there was 
they, sorry, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And we assume that he probably thought the people would have, of course, not chosen Barabbas, this awful criminal, over Jesus. But the Jewish leaders continued to incite the crowd and, uh, for, and call for Jesus to be executed. And Pilate just had underestimated the power of these religious leaders, the power of the crowd, and found himself even deeper now in, uh, in trouble as the judge. So then he has an idea. Let's go from verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, this judge who was described earlier by Michael Green as corrupt, grossly inhumane, cruel, and often murdered untried people, couldn't bear the thought of this man's blood on his conscience. He could see that he was innocent. He could see that he was a good man. The New Century version of Matthew's description of Barabbas was that he was known to be very bad. So at center stage that day, there was one man who was perfectly good and another who was very bad. And it was very clear to Pilate who was who. This man deserves death, this man does not. These two men here, Barabbas and Jesus. As we read the gospel accounts, it becomes apparent that there are some extraordinary things about these two men on center stage that day. There are really some incredibly remarkable similarities. In the New Testament, names have particular significance. Names are given to reflect something about the person, about their character. So for instance, we see the disciple Simon renamed by Jesus. He says, you will from now on be known as Peter, which means rock. Hey, Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. He spoke something about his identity and the confession that he had just made, that Jesus was the Lord. Barabbas is an interesting name. We come across a few people in the pages of the Gospels whose name begins, as Barabbas does, with B-A-R, Bar. And Mark tells us in chapter 10 that Bartimaeus was the son of Timaeus. In Acts, we're told that Barnabas means son of encouragement. So Bar means son of. Barabbas means son of Abbas, son or son of Abba. Abba is one of the few Greek words left in its Greek form in all translations of the Bible. And Mark and Paul use the phrase to explain its meaning by keeping it in, following it with its translation. So they talk about Jesus praying to Abba, Father. So Bar means son of, 
and Abba means father. So Barnabas essentially means son of the father. And we immediately see here a similarity, don't we? Because Jesus was, of course, the one perfect son of the father, the son of God. So both sons of the father, just spiritually speaking, not the same one. If we go back in the story a little before Jesus is arrested, we see him in John chapter 8 having a pretty assertive conversation with the Jewish leaders who were trying to find a way to kill him. And in verse 44 there, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. You belong to your father, the devil. Whatever, sorry, whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So here he is speaking to the religious authorities, leaders of the day of Judaism, saying, you're not operating under Father God. You are operating under the influence of the devil, basically, who has just clouded your minds. You cannot see who I am and what I've come to do, and you're trying to kill me. So who do we think Barnabas's father is, spiritually speaking here, the God of love or Satan, the murderer. So we have two sons of the father, two Barabbases at the center of the public's attention that day. The God of, sorry, the son of the God of this world, as Paul describes Satan in 2 Corinthians, and the son of God. Barabbas applied to both, and both were sons, but of different fathers. That's not the only interesting thing about Barabbas' name. First of all, uh, Barabbas is not a complete name. For instance, we we find a guy called uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Barabbas would have actually had a personal name. And although quite a few translations of the Bible have it, many of of them don't. It's just not in there. Uh, But many of them do have a footnote. I found 10 English translations which have it in, but others have a footnote saying, This is what it says in the original manuscripts, but it's actually not in the translation. So let me go back to my normal Bible, to today's NIV, and read that passage to you again. This is Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? So Barabbas' first name was apparently Jesus. During the time this was written in the New Testament, the the name Jesus didn't hold the particular significance that it does for us today. Jesus was relatively common as a name, and just as today in this gathering tonight, uh, a number of us are called John. So back then, there would have been a number of people who shared that first name. Some scholars believe the evidence indicates that Barabbas' first name was intentionally edited out as the Bible was copied by script writers who copied every word that for some deliberate reason it was actually removed. And one well-documented case involves a scholar, scholar, Oregon, born in the second century, who reportedly promoted this change for reverential reasons because he didn't want the name Jesus to be associated with a criminal. So both of them, Jesus by name and Barabbas by description. Jesus, the son of the God of this world, and Jesus, the son of God. The name Jesus means something. It essentially means savior. 
Both of these men were saviors, but in different ways. Both of them wanted to save. That's what they were driven by. That was their motivation, to save. They both wanted to set people free from oppression. Barabbas wanted freedom for the Jewish people, and he went about that quest for salvation through uprising and murder. Jesus came to save the world, not just the Jews, and he did it a different way. He did it by self-sacrifice, by dying himself, shedding his own blood rather than the blood of others. Barabbas had blood on his hands. He was a murderer. Jesus also had blood on his hands, his own blood coming from the nails that he allowed people to drive through them. Barabbas spilled other people's blood. Jesus voluntarily spilt his own blood. Barabbas was a freedom fighter who committed the crimes of murder and uprising against this occupying army, the Romans, and he sought to establish this kingdom for the Jews to be rid of Roman oppression, and he intended to be a savior to his people. He was determined to be that by whatever means uh, came his way, a savior the world's way, the way of his father, the God of this world. Many, including Jesus' disciples, had assumed Disciples had assumed this is what Jesus would do, overthrow the Roman occupying army. But Jesus was establishing a different sort of kingdom. He was going to save the world from death and from separation from God. Both saviors. They were also both seen as rebel leaders. The crowd, we're told, swung away from Jesus in support of freeing Barabbas because the religious leaders incited them to do so. Okay, But one of the reasons the crowd may have swung may be because Barabbas wasn't simply a murderer, but he was one who had committed murder in the cause, the cause to rid Israel of this oppressive enemy. And any leader in the fight against the hated Romans would have been very popular, excuse me, with the common people. Many believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Sorry, Jesus, I'm saying here. Jesus was also very popular with the common people, and many believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah, who with God's help would overthrow the oppressive Romans. And so from the viewpoint of the Romans, Jesus could have been appearing to them as a rebel leader. Many people were calling him the Messiah, a title which implied that he might overthrow the existing government. And he had a large number of followers, many of whom might easily be swayed to join him if he led a revolt. So just to recap the little section there, the word Barabbas described both Jesus and this criminal, each of them sons, but of different fathers. Both were called Jesus, which means savior, and both of them were saviors in different ways, a worldly savior and a savior of the world. And both, it seems, were popular heroes who were perceived as rebel leaders. So great similarities, and I personally don't think these things are coincidence. God orchestrates history in amazing ways to create circumstances which are just utterly beyond coincidence. This week we celebrate Good Friday. On Good Friday this week, about 2,000 years ago, these two men were center stage. Jesus Barabbas deserved to die on the cross between his two fellow rebels. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, deserved to go free. Barabbas was on a path which led to death, and Jesus was on a path which led to life. And then, something really remarkable happened. 
they swapped paths. The one who deserved to go free, to live, took the place of the other and was killed on that cross between two rebels. On the cross, it's fair to assume, was prepared for Barabbas. The one who deserved to be executed, who deserved death, took the place of the other and he walked free. They swapped paths. Many years ago, I was thinking about this dynamic and uh, something interesting occurred to me and uh, I thought, I wonder if that would work. And so I actually got a couple of snooker balls and I tested whether it would and it did exactly as I thought it might. Now, we all know that if two snooker balls um, both moving on a snooker table collide, they will bounce off each other. If they're traveling at the same speed and if they meet cleanly, whatever angle they meet at, they will each take the path that the other ball was on. So it doesn't matter whether it's a shallow 20 degrees, they will just swap paths. It doesn't matter even if it's 180 degrees, if they hit cleanly, they will swap paths. And uh, let me show you what I mean. Here we have on the screen a couple of snooker balls. Let's say for the purpose of this illustration that they meet at 90 degrees. This is what happens. The blue ball goes in the direction that the red ball was traveling and the red ball goes in the direction the blue ball was traveling. Let's just see it again. These snooker balls are very similar, just as Jesus and Barabbas were in so many ways similar. Now, if for the purpose of this illustration, the blue ball represents Jesus and the red snooker ball represents Barabbas, it's interesting to see what happens here. So Barabbas was on a path which led to death. Jesus was on a path which led to life. At the point their lives met, they swapped paths. Barabbas took Jesus' path and walked away a free man. Jesus took Barabbas' path and was executed in his place on the cross. Their lives met at the cross, and each took the other's path. That's what the cross of Christ really means. We, we don't know Barabbas' spiritual journey, of course. All we know is that he lived rather than being executed. But this picture profoundly illustrates the invitation to life, to eternal life as we accept what Jesus has done for us. You and me, before we met Jesus, or before we meet Jesus, we are like Barabbas. And like, our, like Barabbas, our lives are headed on a course towards death. But as he swapped with Barabbas, so he did with us. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So without Jesus, we are all on a path ultimately which leads to death. But Paul goes on in that sentence in Romans 6 to say this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Barabbas swapping paths with Jesus, this is a picture, an analogy, which reveals a truth. Jesus died that we might have life and have it in its fullness. We might have life eternal, not only in, uh, as it were, time, it's just, it will never end, but also in quality, eternal life, abundant life. So these events really 
involving Barabbas and Jesus here are just, I think, amazing, an amazing illustration of what the cross means. As the paths of these two men, both in the custody of Pontius Pilate on that particular day meet, everything changes. As their lives intersect, they swap paths. Those of us who are Christians who have received the offer of eternal life as we've committed our lives to following Jesus, we effectively met Jesus at the cross. That's the most important event in the history of the world, the event of God in the person of his son dying so that we might live. In John 3:16, it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in 2 Corinthians 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The cross is the meeting point. And in the pictures we just saw, it's the center of the cross. It's the intersection of the cross, which is the meeting point. And it's at that point our lives changed direction. We were all going on a path that led to death. Because we met Jesus and he took our path, we get to take his. And we, like Barabbas, get to go free. We get to enter eternal life. It's a great picture which gives an insight into the mystery of the cross. We deserve punishment because we've gone our own way. We've not lived in deference to God. And Jesus was perfectly righteous. And on the cross, it's a mystery that we will never fully understand until we uh, meet the Lord in heaven. This transaction is a mystery, but on the cross, you know, we deserve punishment. We've gone our own way, right? Jesus was perfectly righteous. And on the cross, our sin was placed, was put on him. He paid the penalty for it. And as we accept what Jesus has done, his sinlessness was put on us, and we get to live eternally. Theologians use uh, a word that we don't use in common conversation, a word for this, imputation. It means treated as if it were theirs. So at the cross, we have what is known as double imputation, where our sin is imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to us. So Jesus was treated as the worst of sinners, as the sin of the world landed on him. He was treated as if it was his own sin. And we're treated as though we have never sinned. God sees us as holy. Another word for this concept is justification by faith. As we accept what Jesus has done for us and we put our faith in him, we are justified. And a good way to remember what justified means is that it's just as if I'd, just as if I'd never sinned. Pontius Pilate asked the people to choose between these two men, between these two men and what they represent, and many present that day made the wrong choice. Many of us here have chosen Jesus. Some of you have not yet done that. You've not yet decided to choose life. And this evening, the question is posed to you, do you want to swap the path you're on? A path, the Bible says, leads to death and eternal separation from God. Do you want to leave that path and take your first steps on a path which leads to life?
Do you want God to see you as though you'd never sinned? If the answer to those questions is yes, now is a great time to make that choice. And if you would like to do that, the easiest way is for me to pray a prayer. And if what I'm saying is what you would want to say to God, you might like to pray along with me in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud. God is listening to you intently. He is your every thought. But if you are ready to say, I want to choose life, I want my life from this point to be following Jesus, I commit to doing that, then I'd encourage you to pray along with me. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you so loved the world, you so loved me, that you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin and the sin of everybody else. I thank you that as my sin was laid on Jesus, so his righteousness is given to me, and you see me as clothed in white. Everything that I've ever done that I'm ashamed of is washed away. Thank you that I can know you. I can have a relationship with you that will begin now and go on into eternity. And today I choose life. Thank you for the offer of life. And from today forwards, I want to walk with you, learn more about you, get to know you better, and serve you for the rest of my days. Amen.